The format of tonight's meeting is two 10-minute speakers, the first of which will speak on the sixth tradition, followed by our information break, and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker to share on the sixth tradition is Nye. Hi, my name is Nye and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, great to be here tonight. Um, so uh, thank you, Preacher, uh, for asking me to speak on the sixth tradition. Um, and the, so the sixth tradition, an A group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the A name to any related facility or outside enterprise lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. And then uh, the long form. Okay, six problems of money, property, and authority may easily divert us from our primary spiritual aim. We think, therefore, that any considerable property of genuine use to AA should be separately incorporated and managed, thus dividing the material from the spiritual. An AA group, as such, should never go into business. Secondary aids to AA, such as clubs or hospitals, which require much property or administration, ought to be incorporated and so set apart that if necessary, they can be freely discarded by the groups. Hence, such facilities ought not to use the AA name. Their management should be the sole responsibility of those people who financially support them. For clubs, AA managers are usually preferred, but hospitals, as well as other places of recuperation, ought to be well outside AA and medically supervised. While an AA group may cooperate with anyone, such cooperation ought never to go so far as affiliation or endorsement, actual or implied. An AA group can bind itself to no one. Um, so, the... Um, <laughs> so, the... In, in the early days of AA, before we had the traditions, um, you know, and Alcoholics Anonymous was, uh, you know, off to a rocking start, um, like the early AAs, they were like, oh my God, like we've got this thing, we have this miraculous thing, like we've got to get it out to the world. And probably Bill, uh, being the consummate promoter, but he was probably spearheading it, but you know, there was, there was this movement in Alcoholics Anonymous to like, you know, we should have AA hospitals, um, we need to do education, um, we can get into law reform, um, you know, letting the court systems know that like these poor alcoholics can't be locked up, you know, they, they, they suffer from a disease. And, uh, and, you know, we actually did, AA did, Try, you know, in different areas of the United States, like did try hospitals, uh, did try doing uh, education, um, and it didn't turn out very well. Um, 
And, uh, you know, in the original uh, AA charter, um, basically it was like a free-for-all, except the only thing that the early AAers knew was that we should not get involved in prohibition, like alcohol being made illegal. Like, they, they actually had that written down. Like, AA has no opinion on prohibition. But everything else was like free-for-all. And, um, you know, for, uh, for this talk tonight, the um, uh, being kind of an a nerd, um, I looked up in the uh, a grapevine um, in the archives, and there was this great article uh, written by one of the early AAs in Manhattan, and um, and so he's he was writing about the time like before the tr tradition, and that like uh, he said that in the beginning. Uh, that they thought that, that AA needed to do three things for their, uh, their group members. Um, and that was provide a place where members could play cards, eat and have coffee anytime, <laughs> two, maintain an office with telephones as a central clearinghouse for 12-step work and information about meetings, and three, keep our own AA meetings and 12-step work going. And thank you. And you know what? What they found was that, I mean, he said in this article, uh, we made it almost impossible for newcomers to tell the difference between joining a club and simply becoming a sober AA. And he said, I know, I was one of those newcomers. Um, and uh, you know that they had found that, like, instead of doing all of this well, um, the the first two of those have them involved in legal corporations, finances, um, a drunken chef, uh, typewriter repairs, club dues, revising bylaws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And basically it was taking them away from their primary purpose. So, you know, this, this tradition, you know, which follows it really like connects to the fifth tradition with you know like our primary purpose is as a group is you know to, it's for us to carry our message to the next sick and suffering alcoholic and you know that's one part of why the sixth tradition is so important that we don't endorse anyone is because it pulls us out of that primary purpose um, the other reason um, being that like corporations, businesses, uh, you know, any, any sort of things like that, they're, it's made up of humans, and humans are infinitely fallible. And, uh, you know, were a to endorse uh, anything, um, you know, who knows what could go on within that organization, and then somebody could think, oh, that's AA, and AA doesn't work. Um, and uh, I feel like Roman boy. Um, the uh, so and then you know with this uh, with this tradition, um, you know. Oh, and you know. Side note, like that's that's why like in our group, like we do, uh, we have the um, corrections and treatment dinner dance at Anton's, uh, which is uh, this amazing event that we do, uh, that AA does once a year to raise money for 
literature going into hospitals and institutions. And like for a long time, we did it here in this group as well, we were like, oh, you've got to come to Anton's. And we just referred to the event as Anton's. But, like someone in this group, Vince, um, you know, someone like, brought up, rightly so, um, you know, that, that that was actually, we're endorsing th that place. So now that's why from the um, podium that there's, we have this mouthful that the people have to say that they're like, please come join us at the Corrections and Treatment Dinner Dance, raising money for, you know, so, you know, whatever, small price to pay. Because we, like AA can't be, we, we're, we're not associated with that place uh, as, you know, as nice as they are to, to us and as wonderful a time as we have. Um, and then, you know, with this tradition, like there's, which the paradox is both on the group level and then on the individual level, like if I, like how I can practice tradition six in my life, is like, you know, it's uh, to thine own self be true. And like, it's one of those weird AA paradoxes that, you know, leaves you, the, all the newcomers scratching their heads. But, you know, if, if I concentrate, I find that in my life, like if I concentrate, thank you, if I concentrate on my primary purpose, you know, staying sober, helping another alcoholic to achieve sobriety, like, you know, all these things of money, property, and prestige. I mean, I, before I got sober, I was a money, property, and prestige machine. You know, that was, my, that was my focus, and it didn't turn out too well. You know, so like, now sober, I definitely find, like, if I stick to that, like, all those other things work out. You know, just like on the group level, if we can stick to our primary purpose. Thanks. Thank you. Our second ten minute our second ten minute speaker is Maeve. Hi, my name's Maeve and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, my sobriety date is January eighteenth, twenty eighteen. I have five sponsees, I think. Um, a couple of them have kind of disappeared, but I think I still have them. And I, I have a sponsor. I've worked the steps twice, and I um, have a home group. Um, I got sober on the Upper East Side, and I used to come to this meeting in early sobriety, and I used to sit all the way back there in the corner. And I loved this meeting because it was so easy to hide. Um, and, you know, I didn't really want to talk to people, and it was just so big if you just stayed in the corner. If you just stayed in the corner, um, it was all fine. And you know, this is Alcoholics Anonymous, but you're not supposed to be anonymous inside the program. A um, little bit about myself. I was, I was born in Ireland. Um, I didn't live there very long, but um, I remember bars. My father used to take me to bars and remember them being sticky, smelly, and happy. And um, that stayed with me all my life. I, I loved bars for most of my drinking days. And, you know, I was a on and off drinker for about 40 years. And uh, I had periods of sobriety whenever I got in a lot of trouble. I came back to AA and I did a little bit better each time. But, you know, I never did it right. And um, it, it really, you know, I'll talk a little bit about it, but I really had to go to the brink. 
um, for, for me to be here today. You know, my alcoholism started manifesting itself, and I, I say that I believe I have the disease of alcoholism, which I initially treated with uh, booze, and it worked for a while until it stopped working. Um, with this kind of general sense of when I was five or six that I was bad. And then that developed a little bit more into I was stupid, I was ugly, I hated myself, I'm no good at anything, um, people, people don't like me. And then on top of that, um, I was a Catholic and the Catholic Church of the 1960s was, you know, to me, it seemed one of sin. So you layer that sense of sin and being flawed on top of that, and I really didn't have a chance. Um, I come from a big alcoholic, um, Catholic, Irish Catholic family. Um, alcohol in my house was something that was both special and common. It's kind of hard to describe, but I had probably had my first drink. Um, we would sometimes, on special occasions, get um, small glasses of cream de mint on Thanksgiving and Christmas. And uh, I think I stole some cream de mint, and that's the first thing I got drunk on. And there's such low alcoholic content in cream de mint, it's really hard to get drunk on. Um, toward the end of college, toward the end of high school and college, I became um, an everyday, not an everyday drinker, I became a binge drinker. And um, during my 20s, I, uh, I decided that I wasn't very happy, my life isn't going that well, so let me go to the farthest place I can from Massachusetts where I grew up, and that was Japan. And I ended up staying there for 10 years. I told myself this was my bill, I had arrived moment. I told myself I had a ball, and in some ways I did, but you know, I can remember almost from the first time I was getting drunk, I'd wake up in the morning and I would just detest myself and start fantasizing about ways that I could kill myself almost from the very start and that carried on through um, almost um, my entire life. And you know, for me drinking, the big book talks about um, pursuing the delusion of being able to drink like a normal drinker to the gates of insanity. My delusion that I pursued was I wanted to be somebody who was buzzed all the time, but have no consequences. I didn't want to slur, I didn't want DWIs, I didn't want my wives to be angry with me, and it took me a long time to realize that that's just not possible. Um, I've, uh, I have three children, I've been married twice. In more, in more recent history, um, I was living in Westchester with my second wife and two sons. I had a great job downtown. I had a nice house on five wooded acres with a pool, and uh, I thought I had everything. And the reality is, I lost all of that um, because of this disease. But um, I'm here, and I'm actually happier than um, I ever was. And let me tell you a little bit about how I got there. Um, you know, I, I was basically for many, many years uh, just drinking, uh, uh, drinking as soon as I got out of work, passing out on the train, and um, you know, heading up to, to Westchester, and that was that was my pattern for many, many years. About eight years ago, I really started to experience consequences. I got a DWI, in which I ran a motorcyclist off the road, got into a lot of trouble there. Um, more recently, um, seven years ago, my uh, 
ex-wife got a protective order against me. It's the only way um, she could stop me from drinking. You know, I was the kind of drinker where, like, I didn't get violent or anything. I just kind of sat in the corner and drank more than everybody else. And if I drank with a group, people were surprised when they got up after two hours that I couldn't, I couldn't walk or I couldn't talk, but that, that's just how I drank. And, um, you know, I moved into the city about six years ago. Um, and that's where I started coming here. I moved into Sober House on the Upper East Side. I got to know uh, New York City um, AA, and things seemed to be going pretty well for me. I discovered fellowship. I was going to meetings pretty much every night. I was going out for fellowship afterwards. And um, this kind of, that started to give me that sense of belonging that I never had. But um, for whatever reason, I wasn't quite ready yet. And um, um, in January of 2018, I went to a meeting um, on the Upper East Side, and um, I, I'd been to meetings every single day that week, been to fellowship every single day that week. For some reason, I said, I ain't doing fellowship tonight, and I walked out of the meeting. I got two half gallons, one of rum, one of vodka. I went to my apartment. I left, stayed there for a week, stopped answering my emails, and by the end of it, I was running sharp knives up my wrist. And, um, but, you know, in retrospect, that's what I needed to get here. I needed to get to a place where um, I had to decide whether I wanted to live or not. And I decided I wanted to live. And then I knew I had to um, stop drinking. But, you know, I was really broken. When I was coming here five and a half years ago, I was really, really a broken person. I still wasn't sure I wanted to live. And what really changed things for me was um, about three or four months in, um, I had a spiritual experience for the first time. And um, I was reading the Third Step Promises, which talk about um, not being in charge anymore. I, for the first time, realized that I could not run my own life. And at that moment, I turned my will over to my higher power. And I believe that's the thing that's kept me sober and uh, changed everything for me. At about eight or nine months, I realized I was transgender. I had not consciously known I was transgender. Um, I was a terribly unhappy person for most of my life, and I thought that was the result of general self-hatred, but there was something more to it. And um, that, that really, finding out who I was um, really turbocharged um, my recovery. And it taught me, um, the importance of not having expectations because I would have, when I got sober, I would have told you there were just two or three paths for my life and those paths would have been based on my past experience and I could not have imagined um, being transgender and having the life I have right now. Um, and. I like not knowing what's going to happen because for most of my life I knew what's going to ha what was going to happen and it was not good. My, my life is pretty good right now. Um, I'll talk a little bit about why it's good. I remember when I first um, started coming to AA and I heard people with sobriety talking about how good their lives were. I just really, I just really didn't like it. But um, you know, my life's really good and it's a direct result of this program. Um, I've worked for big companies for about 37 years. A year ago, I stopped doing that. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of freelancing right now, and, and that's really good. Um, I have a girlfriend I met at an AA meeting in uh, Cape Cod. I qualified at a meeting. She just came up to me, and we 
we started dating. Um, I get asked to speak at a lot of pride events. Um, no one asked me to speak ever when I was drinking, so I speak at a lot of pride events and do service to the, um, to the uh, queer community um, that way. And um, I actually have a, a memoir coming out in um, August. And um, it's going to be marketed as uh, a coming out in corporate America story. But if an alcoholic in recovery writes a memoir, how can it be anything but um, a recovery story? And, um, and for me, it's very, very simple. Um, if I focus on what I have and, um, and how grateful I am for it, life is good. If I focus on what I don't have and what I want, then life is not good for me. It's really as simple as that. And um, this is the place, um, I never knew it, but this was the place I always wanted to be and that I ultimately belong to. Thank you. Our main speaker tonight is Brian. My name is Brian. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, it's great to be here. It really is. It's an honor and a privilege to speak at the Atlantic Group. Uh, uh, it's great to see all the faces out there and up in the balcony. I was, uh, my uh, 50th uh, high school reunion was a couple of months ago, and uh, I didn't go, uh, but, if they, but if they could see me now. Um, let's see, I think I'll start um, with a uh, disclaimer. Uh, uh, more than one disclaimer. First of all, my throat is, I got terrible allergies, and I don't know whether you've seen the smoke out there. <laughs> it's, uh, so if my voice closes completely, I don't know what I'm going to do. But, um, and also, I, I, just so you know, if you're new, uh, I, I don't speak for AA. And uh, if I say something tonight that you might think is a good idea, and something you'd like to implement into your own life, I suggest you run it by your sponsor, and maybe run it by his sponsor or her sponsor. And uh, I have a two-part story. I uh, had a, a, series, a length of sobriety, considerable length of sobriety, and I found it uh, necessary to pick up a drink. And thank God I've been back for a long time, too. But this is my story, and it doesn't have to be yours. Um, there's plenty of people that I know that I got sober with. There's people in this room, actually, that I got sober with who didn't feel it necessary to pick up a drink and have lived, you know, wonderful full lives. It's also much better for your bank account to not pick up a drink. Um, so uh, I, uh, I guess how it was the first time. I got, I got 30 minutes, so I have, a, you know, an embarrassment of time here. So I'll go, I'll go, uh, I'll go way back. I grew up in... Uh, Rockland County, I was a, uh, the youngest of four boys. It was a colorful family. Um, neither of my parents were alcoholics. Uh, my mother was a devout Catholic. And when I mean devout, she went to Mass every day. When I started drinking, she started lighting candles for me. So when I saw these up here, it reminds me of Mom. By the time I came into the program, the first time you could see those candles from space. She, <laughs> So, um, 
my dad uh, was a uh, detective in the Bronx. He was, uh, but he was miscast. He was not, he shouldn't have been a cop. He should have been like a uh, college professor. He only had a high school. Uh, uh, he only went as far as high school as education, but he was, uh, he was such a learned man. He, all he did was read and, you know, he might have a couple of beers at night or maybe one scotch and then he'd stop. And it was like something, it was like, I, it was, I mean, he lived till he was 97 and he did the same thing all the time, you know. Um, my brothers drank. There was a lot of anger in the house. There were a lot of fights. The neighborhood used to come and watch my brothers fight. It was so entertaining. Um, there were punch holes in the wall at odd angles and heights. My mother had a, um, a picture of the Virgin Mary about four feet off the, wall, off the floor. My friends had come over and asked why it's so low. I said, well, I don't know. Covered a punch hole. That's what it's there for. And uh, I was, uh, I was uh, frightened to death of everything. I was, I was um, afraid of my shadow. And, uh, you know, by the time I got to high school, I was... Uh, I, I, had, I had this growth spurt uh, when I was about uh, 11 or 12. I, I was almost six foot tall, but I was about 64 pounds, you know? And uh, when you're in high school and you're six foot tall and 64 pounds, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to maneuver. And uh, I, uh, I played basketball, and uh, there was uh, two guys on my basketball team uh, one of them was, uh, one of them already started shaving, and this was something that I wouldn't do for another 15 years, you know. <laughs> and and uh, they took me uh, out one night after practice and said, uh, we're going to go have it, we're going to go drinking. And I said, uh, I, first of all, I didn't th I thought they were going to play some kind of trick on me because I, there was no way these guys would ask me to do anything, you know, so. I thought they were going to, like, I don't know, pull my pants down and run away or something, you know. <laughs> but we went to this place in, in town, in Pearl River. It was called Peckman's Liquor Store. And, uh, and the guy who shaved went in, and, and he bought something called uh, Boone's Farm Apple Wine and uh, something called uh, Tango. Tango. It was uh, vodka and, and tang. You know, in case they sent somebody into space that was an alcoholic. And uh, I drank the tango. And uh, I can remember how it felt when it went down. This is serious. I can remember there was a psychic change. I went from somebody who wouldn't say boo if I had a mouthful of it to telling jokes. And I knew I had found, I had found the magic potion. And... Uh, the only thing was, is, uh, you know, as it sometimes is, as it often is with alcoholics, is it, it's a, it plays a trick on you, you know, it wants you, it tells you that this is the answer and then proceeds to, uh, you know, run your life into the ground. Um, I had, I'm sorry, I have to take some of this. I know, I'm going to speak into wherever you are, I'm going to speak into the mic. <laughs> So, I, um, 
You know, it, was, it, it felt to me like I was, uh, I had my, my first drink and I went into, uh, uh, I went to my senior prom and I went into a blackout and I ended up in the 79th Street workshop. That's how quick that trajectory was. <laughs> and uh, I had, uh, I had become a bartender and uh, I was a bartender for a long time. And bartender was a great job for an alcoholic, as you might imagine. And uh, because, you know, not only because the supply is there, but because you can, you know, you dispense it. And I, I had the, the, the disease of, um, of uh, people pleasing. So I could, I could, everybody came to see me, I could give drinks. You didn't want to own a bar that I worked in. That wasn't a good thing. You know? I had, a bar, I had an owner once tell me one, one time, he said, ring the register every now and then just to make sure it works. So, uh, but I, uh, yeah, I, I, I uh, was behind a bar and I was a blackout drinker and I was uh, a loaded weapon behind the, uh, behind the wheel. I, I was in, I don't know, half a dozen car accidents. I had a family one night. They were coming home from, uh, it, was, it was like six o'clock in the evening and they were going to the mall and I T-boned them. Uh, by the grace of God, nobody was hurt in that accident. I could have killed, killed three people. Um, I got 12-stepped in a blackout. I went to a, a bar that I, a friend of mine worked in. And uh, I don't remember being there. I was in a blackout. And the next day I woke up and I had an AA pamphlet in my back pocket. And I don't know whether that has ever happened to anybody here, but it's not a, it's not a great feeling, you know? And... Uh, the guy that had put it in my pocket would become my sponsor. Um, uh, he, I, 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 and I stayed sober, and I thought I was, for a long time, I thought I was a really special, you know, out of all of the alcoholics that came into this bar, he chose me to put a, a pamphlet in the pocket, and I, I found out he had a stack of them behind the bar, and he was putting them in the pockets all night. The name of the place was Elaine's. It was a, a pretty famous uh, restaurant in New York, and. Uh, Three of us behind the bar there were all sober. My sponsor worked there and two other bartenders worked there. It was crazy. It was a very hard drinking place. Uh, but when I came in, I, the first time I came into AA, and I always say that this, if you would have told me when I had two years of sobriety, five years of sobriety, 10 years of sobriety, that I was gonna end up picking up a drink, I would have told you you were crazy. I loved AA. I loved AA. And I loved the fellowship. I, um, you know, this was the early 80s, and it was a lot different. There's a couple of people in the room that know that era of Manhattan AA. Uh, it wasn't a big, big book era, you know? It was a big uh, finding your, uh, your inner child era. You know, there was John Bradshaw and Marianne Williamson and, and uh, the Course of Miracles, you know? And uh, by the way, the Course of Miracles, is, if you're looking to do something that's creative, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to follow. I did it, it's morning pages and stuff like that. And uh, just as an aside, they were talking about the, I wanted to be a writer, you know. So I did this and uh, somebody said, you ought to try to write something for the grapevine. And uh, I said, really? So I tried and I, I submitted it and uh, they published it. It's back in like 85 or 86, and uh, the name of the article is Listen for the Laughter by Brian M., if you want to look it up, you know. 
And, and uh, I was as proud as you could be. I was going into meetings and I was saying to people, did you read the great plan this week? It was, the, it, was, it was the greatest moment. So anyhow, I, I was on this, uh, this journey, and uh, I, I was thinking about this, but I don't, I don't prepare. I've, I've qualified a lot, so I, I don't, you know, and sometimes you just plug it in and you tell the story, you know, and uh, I'm trying not to do that tonight, but, you know. Uh, but there was three reasons that I remember what, that led me towards picking up a drink. And uh, the first one was the big book thing, you know? That I didn't, I didn't, we didn't read it. I, it wasn't, I'm not gonna say we didn't. I didn't read it, you know? I mean, I had one, it was in my house. I had my crystals on it and my dream catcher, you know? But I never opened it, you know? I didn't open it. So that, so that was one. The second reason, uh, although I was great in fellowship, and uh, you know, I was really, everybody knew me. I, was, I had high profile AA, you know. And, uh, uh, but I stopped helping people. You know, and, and, and sobriety is like a pool, you know. It's like, you, and it, if you don't have fresh water coming in, if you're not helping people coming in, that pool gets, and the runoff going out, the pool gets stagnant, it becomes like the, the, the creature from the Black Lagoon or something. And it's, and it's not fun, and AA isn't fun. I remember going into, uh, I remember going into a meeting one time, and, uh, you know, because I wasn't, you know, I just wasn't helping anybody. Uh, anyhow, and the third one, I just wanted, because I'll forget if I don't, if I don't tell you the third one. Uh, the third one was, I wasn't telling everybody everything. You know, my friend Kevin S. says, somebody's got to know everything. Now, one person doesn't have to know everything about you, but you can't have secrets. Somebody has to know every part of your life. And I was keeping, excuse me, I was keeping secrets, you know. So those three things conspired to put me in a very, very perilous position as far as my sobriety is concerned. I, um, uh, because, I, I mean, some wonderful things happened during that sobriety. I learned how to fly an airplane. I did. I, learned, I got a pilot's license. Uh, I decided I wanted to be a writer, so I went and I took this path. I went back to school. I didn't, I didn't have any uh, college credits, and I got an undergraduate degree, and then I went to graduate school for journalism. And, uh, you know, so, but all of that were gifts of sobriety, you know? And when I was in the graduate school, uh, it was in between semesters. I made the decision that I was going to go to Ireland. And uh, I was going to go by myself. Now, I, I don't think on the surface I was, if you would have asked me, I don't think I would have said, I'm, I'm going to go drinking. That's why I'm going to Ireland. Nobody knows me over there. There's nobody from the workshop over there. I'm going to be able to. But I didn't have that in my conscience, conscious uh, thoughts. And, uh, you know, I flew to Ireland, and I got to Ireland, and I have cousins all over Ireland. I come from an Irish family, Irish family, and uh, I didn't call any of them. I didn't call anybody. I went into the hotel. The hotel was, uh, uh, there's a, something called the All-Ireland Hurling Final, and that's like their Super Bowl. And one of the teams, uh, the fan base was in that hotel. 
and uh, they hadn't been in the All Ireland final for 750 years or something. So they, they, they were very enthusiastic, you know. And I went into the bar, and uh, I got the bartender's attention, and I just said, I'll have a Guinness Stout. I was 14 years sober. And it was like I, you know, like it turned around. Who, who said that, you know? Who said that? And uh, the guy put a Guinness Stout on the, uh, on the bar. And uh, I drank it, and it wasn't any, any like, oh my God, what am I doing? There wasn't any, like, there wasn't any thunder or rumble of thunder. There wasn't any uh, great guilt or anything. It was almost like I just shrugged and uh, walked out of there. And I came back to New York and New York AA. I mean, not New York AA. I came back to the city and I was drinking. I said, okay, I'm drinking now. And that's what I did. I started going out. Now, uh, by this time, I was 40, I was in my early 40s, about 42 or something, and uh, uh, I thought I could capture that magic that happened the first time I was drinking. <laughs> so I was going to bars on the east side, and I mean, I was so out of place, you know. I, I was older than everybody in the place. I, I might as well have been wearing like a neon sign that said, send this guy back to AA, he's out on a slip, you know. <laughs> and. Uh, so I, uh, I just stayed home. I started drinking in my apartment. I live on 89th Street. I still live in that one apartment. And uh, as uh, luck would have it, and the saints allow, I, I had some um, success in uh, this writing career. I actually, the success came after I picked up a drink. So it wasn't like the success came and then I picked up a drink. And uh, part of that thing, uh, it was a book that I, that I had written, and uh, when it, you know, it came out, and it was you know, a certain amount of uh, whatever. But I went, I went down to Florida to uh, celebrate, again, by myself. I went to South Beach, and uh, somebody was nice enough to introduce me to cocaine there. So I... I uh, I wasn't, I wasn't a coke, I didn't do a lot of coke first time around. I made up for it. <laughs> and uh, I came back to the uh, New York and now I was, you know, a coke uh, fiend staying in the apartment. I had a, uh, you know, the thing is, is that the, your life gets so small, you know, and uh, I wasn't talking to anybody. I wasn't talking, and, and, and the thing about, I, I mean, I really knew everybody in AA, but in, you, can, you can fade out, especially in Manhattan AA. You could start making an Irish exit, as they call it, in the trade, you know, where so all of a sudden it's five years later and people are saying, what are, where's Brian? Have you seen him? You know? And that's, how, that's what it was. So there was nobody in my life, you know, a nobody. Like the Chinese delivery guy would come over and I'd like say, you want to come in? Tell you. <laughs> That's a joke. I shouldn't have done. That's a cheap trick. I shouldn't have said that. So, uh, you know, it was just my sponsor. I had my sponsor. My dealer, who was my sponsor. You know? And, uh, you know, I started taking advice from him, you know. 
I'm thinking of buying a new microwave. What do you think, Jose? <laughs> oh, okay. See, I'm starting to go down. Don't let me do that. One of the things I did in early sobriety, I went and I, uh, I always wanted to be a comedian, and I, I, I went to this comedy college. It was just one, one class, and did a stand-up in uh, some comedy club down in uh, Lower Manhattan, and uh, you know it was it was it was frightening as all all anyhow. And I don't know I I, would, uh, I told about four jokes, and it was like they were underwater. There was not like no sound out there at all. So <laughs> I thought maybe this isn't a career for me. So <laughs> anyhow, my dealer one day he says uh, says to me uh, since I was taking advice from him, he says to me, I, you know you. Wasting your time, snorting it, you, you should smoke it, you'll get more bang for your buck. And like I said, I was taking his advice, so the next thing you know, I was firing it up and smoking crack. Yeah, now I'm like 45 on, the, on the East 89th Street, stone crack at it, stone, absolute crack at it. And, uh, you know, it got dark, and, uh, you know, that's not a... It's not a drug that uh, has any social redeeming value whatsoever, you know. And uh, I, uh, you know, I'd, I'd spend everything and, and uh, borrow everything and burn every bridge and, and, um, and um, you know, there'd be nothing there. And I'd think about AA, you know, I'd think about my AA. Oh, and this happened. There was a guy I knew in the program, his name was Jesse Friedman, he's now deceased, that's why I'll use his last name. And he was a great guy, a great AA, loved him. And we were good pals. And uh, when I went out, I, uh, my, my anniversary used to be in March, March 13th. And uh, March 13th, the next March 13th that came, when I was out, I, I, I go to my mailbox and I open it up and there's a letter. And it's from Stuyvesant Oval, where Jesse lived, you know. And it's kind of heavy. I get it. I open it up. I, I don't know what it is, so, but I open it up, and it's an anniversary card with my 15th year anniversary coin in it. You know, it's like somebody just punched me in it. You know, I got rid of it, and I don't know what I did with it. Threw it in there. Took me about two weeks to get over that. The next March 13th, forgot all about it. Go to my mailbox, I open it up, there's a card there from Stuyvesant Oval, from Jesse, with my 16th year anniversary code. And he did that for about four years, or five years. And I said to him, I, I told this story at his funeral, at his memorial. I said to him when I finally did come back, didn't you know I was out? He said, yeah, I knew you were out. <laughs> I was just throwing your lifelines, you know? Um, I came out of the uh, apartment one day. Uh, I didn't know whether it was day or night. I was, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about how it is because I've, I have a different sobriety this time around. I really, I really do. I treasure my sobriety. I've uh, worked hard at it. I've worked hard uh, going through the steps. I go through the steps with sponsees all the time. Uh, but I came out of the apartment that, uh, 
uh, one day. I didn't know whether it was day or night. You know, I'm like, I was like Count Dracula. I had no idea what was going on. And I, and I happened to walk into a woman who was coming from the 11-step meeting at the workshop. It was a Sunday morning, beautiful Sunday morning, the end of August. And she's lit up, you know, as only somebody could be. For, that's just been to an 11-step meeting, you know. She's, she's got those AAIs bright. She's just absolutely thrilled to see me. And I'm like, she, if I had to pick five people in the whole world that I didn't <laughs> want to see, she would have been on that list, you know. And, uh, but I had no choice. I bumped right into her. So she said, Brian, how you doing? As everything. And for whatever reason, you know, God's grace, and it had to be God's grace, because if it happened the day before or the day after, I know I would have come up with a story. I would have come up with a story. But that moment, that moment, I, uh, I said, things aren't good. I've been smoking a little crack. <laughs> and uh, she, uh, as, as, uh, as it happens in this program, you know, she was just perfect. She was an angel. And uh, the next day I found myself in a workshop, a 715 meeting, it was a round robin, it was mostly women, and it was mostly a lot of mac, mac, uh, needlepoint, and, and me, the Tasmanian devil, I was just, <laughs> I hated everybody, I hated AA, I hated everything. And uh, I don't know, a couple of months in, there was a uh, topic was hope, and it came around, and it can't, I couldn't wait till it got to me because I was going to tell them how little hope I had. Hope, you can take this hope. I'm not going to swear, but you know what I was going to say. And, uh, and I did. It came to me. And the guy after me was a guy named Bronx Jimmy. I haven't seen him. I don't know where he's gone since. But he said to me, you can borrow some of mine. And that's really, really a cliche or, 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 or trite or whatever, but it just... It just opened the door for me for some reason. And uh, I got hooked up in this men's group, Monday Men, if you're a guy and you want to come, coincidentally, we meet on Monday night. Please come by. It's the greatest home group, uh, present company excluded, but it's the greatest home group in, the, uh, in Manhattan. I got it. And uh, I started to uh, work the steps. I have a sponsor, still have a sponsor, Peter Y. And Peter Y and I went through the steps with Joe and Charlie. We got the cassettes of Joe and Charlie and a Walkman doing the Joe and Charlie. And there's nothing like those people. If you, have, if you haven't listened to Joe and Charlie, please go find them. Go, go listen to them. We started, I started to go uh, to a retreat. He had this. Uh, Matt Talbot retreat, we go on twice a year. I started to laugh again. I started a fellowship, but the fellowship was different this time around. It was fellowship with a foundation. It was fellowship like you do here, you know? It was that kind of fellowship. It really meant something. Um, this August, I'll have 20 years back. It's a long time, right? Yeah, you don't have to I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. I'm incredibly grateful. You know, I found my, at Monday Men, I, I found my herd, you know? They say stay in a pack, stay in a herd. That was my herd. It was, it was just, and I heartily suggest, if you're new, I can see up there, up there in the balcony. I know you're looking at me, you know? 
that you find your herd, you know? And if you're in this meeting and you don't, can't find a herd, this is like the Serengeti here. <laughs> there's, there's herds all over this room, so find it and stay with them, you know? Um, I don't know, do I, am I out of time? I have four minutes? Three minutes. I don't know what to say with three minutes, so um, I'm sorry, I gotta, I gotta close it up now. Um, thank you very much for, for listening to me.